add a bit of sunshine to your home with Easy Living Furniture's Garden Furniture Sale with stunning dining sets, cracking egg chairs and relaxing sun loungers that are in stock and ready for delivery there really is something for everyone and with an extra 10% off sale prices and free delivery over 399 now really is the time to let your garden shine Garden Sale now on Visit Easy Living Furniture Don't miss out Find your local store online at easylivingfurniture.ie Leia Healthcare Looking after you always Proud sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry Hello and welcome to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. Folks, on this week's show, I'll be talking all about sleep. Something so many people are interested in, probably because we're not getting enough. With many workers having returned to the office or getting ready to leave remote working behind, how would this impact our sleep? I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Andrew Coogan, behavioral neuroscientist who specializes in sleep. He's also the director of the Chronobiology and Sleep Research Lab at Maynooth University. Andrew, thank you for joining me. How's it going? Very good, Carl. How are you? What is chronobiology? Tell us that before we go any further. So chronobiology is the science of body clocks. Okay, so I'm fascinated. So the particular body clock we work on is something called the circadian clock, which is basically our daily clock. Circadian comes from Latin, circa, about, dean, a day. So we have this naturally inbuilt clock um, that times our activity and our physiology on a near 24-hour basis. And the fascinating thing is we can take people and we can put them in caves or bunkers and remove clocks and remove access to light and anything like that. And we still have this 24-hour rhythm. So it's completely inbuilt into us. And are all our 24-hour rhythms the same? So is mine the same as yours or can they vary? So, So they vary between people. So we talk in chronobiology about chronotypes. So that's basically if you're a morning person or an evening person, when do you prefer to organize your sleep-wake activity? So when, you know, if left to your own devices, when would you wake up? When would you go to bed? And that actually varies a lot between people. It varies a lot as we develop. So teenagers, we know teenagers have a late chronotype, especially teenage boys. It's sort of the classic up at the crack of noon teenager. Um, And then that changes to our life course. But even within our own age range, we vary it. It's like personality. I mean, we've got different personality traits. We have different chronotypes. Okay, so it can be true to say that some people are morning people, some people are evening people, and that's true, scientifically true. that's, That's absolutely true. So, and this is a basic enough question, but why do we need sleep? Obviously, from my own perspective, we talk about it all the time to people, your body recovers and all this lovely stuff. But from, as a professor, tell us why we need sleep. So, so that's sort of the million dollar question and that's what always gets asked. However, if you think about it like this, we spend about one third of our lives asleep. Um, we spend two thirds of our lives awake. Now, we never ask what's wakening for. You know, why are we awake? (laughs) So in a way, it's probably the wrong question to ask, why do we sleep? As if there's one thing we need sleep for. So sleep probably does many, many, many different things. Now, the one thing we do know is that sleep is required. So if we look in the animal kingdom and we see, can we find an animal that doesn't sleep or have a sleep-like state? 
we can find them. So even things like the most basic jellyfish, they have a state that looks like sleep, you know, if you're a jellyfish. Um, so that's telling us that sleep is doing something that we can't do without. Um, now, what that is, we're not quite sure. We think in terms of like psychology, sleep's really important for learning and memory. So our brain sort of replays the information we've acquired during the day when we're asleep, and that helps strengthen our memories for the things we want to remember. But obviously during the day, we're exposed to lots of stuff that isn't important for us to remember. And it also helps us to sort of forget the non-pertinent bits and remember the important bits. The brain has a system, it's like a sewerage system to wash out all the sort of metabolic waste that accumulates during the day. That seems to be really important in sleep. So it's like a deep cleanse um, during sleep. It's really important for our physiology, for our immunology. Um, so it, it's really important probably for every little bit of what we are and what we do. So is it fair to say that for children and how children uh, late in the evening before sleep might recap through their day by you know, singing songs they've learned or, or, or names they've learned or things they've learned? You can almost hear before they go to sleep, they'll run through a recap. It's not them recapping the things that are that they've learned that are important to them over the course of that day. Yeah, it, it, it could very well be. And then what happens in the brain is that if you recorded the brain signals as the kids are doing that, what you would see is the same sort of signals repeating during sleep. So it's like a replay within the brain. Now, we're not consciously aware of this. You know, this isn't dreaming or anything like that. It's what the brain is doing when it's offline, basically. You know, it's like plugging out the Ethernet cable or switching off the Wi-Fi. And, you know, but, but when you do that, it seems like the same things replay, and that helps the brain strengthen those connections and make those memories. So, so we know when we get people to do like a memory task to learn, you know, and then have sleep and then repeat it after a sleep that they do better after the sleep than they do um, if they don't have the sleep. So just sleep is strengthening those memories. And that seems to be really important. Well, that's an important thing to remember for anyone doing exams or maybe have junior or leaving certs in the house who will often cram and cram yeah. and cram and leave sleep behind. By sleeping more, you're going to remember more when you go into the exam the next day. Yeah, so so that sort of staying up all night cramming can be counterproductive. Now, it can't be counterproductive because, first of all, you're not going to learn what it is you're trying to learn as well. But obviously, you're going to be sleepy and sleep deprived the next day as well, which is going to affect your performance. So often, you know, less is more. And there's a tendency to sort of squeeze out sleep and say, well, you know, I'll study more and what, you know, but we only have so many hours in the day. So what gets pushed aside is sleep, but that can actually be counterproductive. And the magic eight hours, it's everywhere. Books, newspaper articles, mm. radio. When you ask someone sleep, the first thing that comes into their head will be eight hours. Scientifically, what's the crack? Is it is it important? Is it not, is it the magic number that we're led to believe or yeah. it, does it vary? So, so that's a really important, but it's actually quite a difficult question to answer. So the amount of sleep we need changes with what stage of life we're at. So small kids need lots of sleep. It's not necessarily sleep when you would like them to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if we look at like 
babies, they might sleep something like 16 hours of the 24 hours. Um, then that comes down a little bit, but like kids and adolescents in particular, they need quite a bit of sleep. You know, there's so much going on in their brains during adolescence. They need quite a lot of sleep. Then it comes down when we hit sort of adulthood and middle age. And then it comes down a little bit more in older age. Now, within that, we are different as people. Again, you know, it's like the famous line from Life of Brian, you're all individuals. And this is really true. So so that sort of seven to eight hours is true for someone my age, say, but that's true on average. When we look what makes up the average, there's actually quite a wide spread of individual differences. Now, Probably the hard stop is probably somewhere around five hours. Probably there's no one out there that can get by habitually, you know, every day on less than five hours sleep. But there are probably a few people out there, a small percentage of people, that five hours is fine for them. More again for six hours. There's some people that might need nine hours. Um, so there's quite a spread of differences. And this is something we worry about quite a bit. So. We want to say sleep's important. We want to say get enough sleep. Make sure you're giving yourself ample opportunity to get that seven or eight hours sleep. But that may not be true for you as an individual. And therefore, we worry about making people anxious. Oh, my God, I'm not getting enough sleep. You know, they tell me sleep's so important. Ooh, what am I going to do? But the answer is that that may be okay for you. What you're doing for you might be okay. So if you're not, having a lot of daytime sleepiness, if you're not needing naps during the day, if you're not really feeling or other people are telling you that you're making mistakes or, you know, your cognition, your attention isn't as good as possible, if your mood is okay, well, then maybe what you're getting is okay for you. Um, and you mentioned naps there. Should that that idea of the power nap? It's kind of come back into fashion in the last couple of years, where you kind of read, you you, you see it a little bit more being talked about. I remember my granddad used to nap for kind of half an hour every day. It was just what he did. Uh, is power napping is it a good idea? Is it important, or is it a sign that you're not getting enough sleep at nighttime? So, in in general, napping is probably uh, a good thing. Napping probably isn't a good thing for you if you have a nap in the day, but then you can't get to sleep at night. But if you nap in the day and you're falling asleep fine when you go to bed in the evening, that's good. Probably for people like shift workers who have to work through the night, the opportunity to nap during the shift is probably really advantageous. So the benefit you get from that 15 or 30 minute nap is actually disproportionately big to the amount of time you spend in the nap. You should probably limit the nap to no more than 30 minutes because what happens if it gets longer is you suffer from what's known as sleep inertia. So that's, you know, that really woolly-headed feeling, you know, when you wake up and, you know, and, and you can't quite, you know, you feel groggy um, and it takes you a while to shake that off. So the shorter the nap, the less um, sleep inertia you have. But in general, yes, napping is probably good. And and we see it in lots of other cultures, like you go to the Mediterranean in the summer and everyone's gone for a lie down between two and four or whatever. Um, so it is beneficial. And I think the key thing for, again, for individuals to think about 
if you're having a nap and you're going to bed and you're falling asleep without lying in bed, sort of staring at the ceiling, then that's probably okay. If you're having a nap and then you're finding it for her to fall asleep during the night, then it might be a good idea to maybe to phase out the nap. It's a bit like kids as well. When, when kids develop and they sort of lose their midday nap, you know, as their toddlers, because they no longer need it. Um, you can think about it, something like that. But in general, sleep medicine is very supportive of the idea of naps. Sleep medicine. That's, a, that's another lovely title. We're getting all the, all the nice titles today. This is great. Um, can we get, I'm, I'm intrigued by this one because my, I know I have my own opinion on it, but can we get too much sleep? And especially say at the weekend, a Saturday, Sunday, we always tell people avoid that big lie-in because it's going to throw your sleep rhythm for the whole week. Is that a myth yeah. or is there some truth in it? So that's what's called catch-up sleep. So most of us during, so about 80% of us in normal times use an alarm clock to wake up during the working day. Um, and the reason we do this is that we've got to get up earlier than our bodies are ready to get up. And that leads us to accumulate what we know as sleep debt. So we're not getting enough sleep and we build up that sleep debt over the working week. And what we do then during the weekend or week free, uh, work free days is that we oversleep a little bit to compensate for that sleep debt. Now, we don't oversleep by the same amount. It's much less. Um, and the question is, does that make up for the sleep debt accumulated during the day? Um, and it, that's something that studies have really only begun to address in very recent years. So there was a study done uh, recently by colleagues in the States that looked at that at metabolic risk. So we know short sleep is associated with um, poorer metabolic health, greater risk of diabetes, greater risk of obesity. Um, and they figured that the catch-up sleep at the weekend wasn't enough to offset the increased risk from not getting enough sleep during the working week. It's not clear if that's the case for 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 other things. Um, so, so we don't really know. Um, I think the idea is if you can lie in bed at the weekend and wake up when your body tells you to wake up, that's fine. And you shouldn't try to mold that. What you definitely shouldn't do is try to wake up at the weekend the same time you wake up during the working week, because that's only going to make the problem worse. If you're not getting enough sleep during the working week, you're not going to get enough sleep during the weekend, and actually you're going to accumulate more and more sleep debt. You asked then about is too much sleep a bad thing? And that's a really difficult question to ask, to answer for the reason, yeah. So we have associations between diseases and sleep duration. So we know short sleep is associated with greater risk, for example, for heart disease and for diabetes. When we look at those studies, we also see that people that sleep longer are also at increased risk. But what we can't figure out yet is if people who sleep longer, do they sleep longer just because they have the disease? Or is the, is the longer sleep making them more likely to develop the disease? And one of the reasons we can't figure that out is that we can't do experimental studies. So we can do experimental studies when we take people in the sleep lab and we sleep deprive them. We make them short sleep. 
you know, we shake them and wake them up. Can't do that for long sleep. You can't make people sleep longer. You know, you can't bring them in the lab and stand over them and go sleep longer and see what happens. It doesn't work like that. So, so it's it's an open question. I wouldn't be particularly worried about oversleeping. I think um, certainly I I'd be a lot more worried about short sleep, short sleep duration than I would be about long sleep duration. Folks, you're listening to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. We're chatting all things sleep, and it is absolutely fascinating. Let's chat about sleep disruptors. Uh, mm-hmm. The phone, I have to go to the phone first, because that's the obvious one to go, because we all do. We all sleep with our phones. There are alarm clocks. There are, are there are our comforter instead, mm-hmm. of the, instead of the teddy when we're young. How disruptive are phones in the bedroom to sleep? Or are they? Maybe they're not. So, so this really plugs into something we term sleep hygiene. So basically one of the key tenets of sleep hygiene is that your bedroom should be for sleeping and if you're lucky, sex. And it shouldn't be for anything else. So we shouldn't have screens, we shouldn't have entertainment devices or whatever in the bedroom. And that really helps us, our brain associate that environment with sleep. And that actually really helps sleep. Question then is there is something specific about phones that impacts on sleep. So the thing that we would think about is the light that's emitted from the screen of the phone, because that actually feeds into the brain and feeds into our circadian clock in our brain. Um, and actually we know that the type of light that comes out of an LED, which is what the light from your phone is, is actually exactly the type of light that most impacts on the clocks in our brain. However, we don't really know if that drives anything in the real world. So again, we have a bit of a chicken and an egg situation when we think about this problem of phones. So people who sleep less do use their phones more often at night. Okay, But do they sleep less because they're using their phones? Or are they waking up at night, go, oh, well, I'll check my phone now where I'm awake. And therefore, they wait, they use their phones more because they have poor sleep. And we're not really sure what's what. Now, the way to circumvent that is just to put a phone outside the bedroom. Um, but in the same way, you should put your laptop outside the bedroom, your, you know, PlayStation, whatever it is. If you can, now clearly, you know, some people have to, you know, they've been working from their bedrooms and all that, and you don't have any option. But if you can, try to strip down your bedroom to really, to the core functions of the bedroom. And it's not a sort of entertainment center. And that probably will help sleep. And it's very much creating that sleep routine for people then. So just like children, adults need that sleep routine, the sleep cycle and and training your mind and training your body into the routine of that in terms of screen-free time, maybe reducing caffeine presumably later in the afternoon, things like that. That sleep story or that sleep cycle is a really important thing to get into the habit of. Yeah, absolutely. A sort of a stable sleep routine, a sort of wind down period. Um, so one of the things that we know makes it difficult to sleep if we lie in bed and we're ruminating. So we're running through those thoughts. You know, there might be problems at work, problems about finances, and that's really going to make it difficult to fall asleep. And you know, you've got mind racing then. So something that helps you de-stress and unwind, even something like a bat um, in the in the couple of hours before bedtime. 
Again, trying to keep a standard sleep routine, something that works for you and within the context of your household. You know, obviously, you know, for, for a lot of people, it's not just them, it's everyone else. And everyone else in your household might have different sleep routines than you do. You know, so, so it's, it's not simple. But if you do try to find a sort of ritual that helps, certainly try to avoid caffeine, alcohol, in in the evening times that's that's helpful as well um but yeah try to settle into some type of rhythm that works and that's going to be different for different people and as i said we're really concerned you know we've got all these idealized situations where in a perfect world but of course we don't live in a perfect world you know so we have to try to apply them to the way we live you know and houses we live in and families we live with everything like that and my final question is for people who suffer from insomnia who say they can't yeah. sleep what tips or recommendations do you have for them yeah so insomnia is characterized by an inability to fall asleep a inability to stay asleep so you wake up in the middle of the night and or unrefreshing sleep which is you sleep but you wake up and you're still tired the next day now, we will all have what we term acute insomnia. So that's a night you can't sleep. You know, everyone's experienced that for, what, for whatever reason. We're not terribly concerned about that. What we are concerned about is chronic insomnia. So chronic insomnia, where this is an ongoing issue. Um, so over the course of a month or more, chronic insomnia is really common. About 10% of adults suffer from chronic insomnia. Um, and the interesting thing is, it's not just a sort of Western industrialized thing. We find the same rates in East Asia, in South Asia, in Africa. So, so it's there, and it's it's a, it's a big problem. The real problem in insomnia is that we know what works in treating it, but those treatments aren't available. So the treatment that works. And that's the frontline recommended treatment, for example, in the UK, according to the NICE, the clinical guidelines. It's something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So we've all probably heard of cognitive behavioral therapy as a talking psychotherapy in, for example, to help people with uh, depressive disorders or anxiety disorders. Um, and this is based on the same principles, but it's targeted towards insomnia. Um, and a lot, so it's got cognitive components, which, so lots of us have um, what we term dysfunctional beliefs about sleep. So beliefs about sleep that aren't true. So if I don't sleep this seven or eight hours, I'll be wrecked the next day and, you know, my life will be a mess, you know. So it, it addresses those. It does the behavioral bit, like the sleep hygiene bit that we've already talked about. Um, and it works. Um, now, unfortunately, there are not enough CBTI therapists out there to deliver that. Um, traditionally, GPs um, have tried to fill the gap using sleep sleeping tablets, um, but they're not really recommended for more than four weeks at the time because the side effects of them. And often they're recommended to get over maybe a bad hump and then maybe something like CBTI to kick in 
then to actually give you the longer term solution. Now, there are some nice internet delivered, app delivered versions of CPTI that actually have really good clinical evidence behind them. And I'd be quite enthusiastic about those. So, so if people out there are suffering from chronic insomnia and we know they are, and we know that they can't access the help that they need because unfortunately it doesn't really exist on the public health system. Um, there are these a couple of apps and I have absolutely no um, commercial interest. Yeah, no, no commercial way, interest yeah. in any of them. Yeah. But there, but there is one called Sleepio, oh, which is actually prescri- prescribed on the NHS. It's got a really good scientific evidence base behind it. Now it's a paid for service, but it is something I recommend people because I get asked this question a lot. And I say, well, this is something, if you can afford to access it, it actually may be very useful for you. So, so insomnia is a real problem. And, and people often don't feel like, you know, they should burden their GP with it. But sleep's really important. You know, if, if you can't get sleep, how miserable it can make you. Um, and we should really think about it on an equal footing with all those other sort of physical um, things that we think about all the time. Professor Coogan, if people want to find out more about the work that you do or learn from you, where can they get in touch or where should they go? So they can find my webpage at the Minute University website. I'm in the Department of Psychology. I'm not hard to find. Um, and I'm, you know, we, we have you have, have you come to Instagram yet? I, I'm not on Instagram, no. Okay, well, you should. Your content is so good and your tips are so helpful for people. I think they need to hear it on Instagram. So that can be your homework off the back of the show. That we'll all, we'll all sleep a little bit better yeah. Yeah. Uh, with the tips and tools that you've given us. But really fascinating episode, great content and great tools. Folks, that's it for another episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. You know where we are, at Carl Henry PT on Twitter and on Instagram, realhealth.independent.ie. Sleep well this week and we're back for next week for more Real Health. It's long fall. Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Proud sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry.